Amen. This is God's Word. Thank you, Sarah, Struan, Max, for reading. Thank you, uh, Aaron, for reading. And Dan, for leading. Thank you. Uh, let's keep this uh, Word open in front of us. We are beginning a new series in the book of First Samuel, and uh, we're excited about it. Well, I am anyway. You, you, I hope you will be, uh, but I am. I think it's a book that has a lot uh, to say to us in this day and age, and uh, spoiler it's all about Jesus, but you knew that anyway, right? Uh, let's pray together before we go through this passage together. Our Father, uh, we thank you that, uh, for that word that is in 1 Corinthians. It tells us that everything that was written in days former past was for our instruction. It teaches us doctrine, what we should believe about you and your gospel. And it teaches us how we should live in light of it. And we pray your blessing on us, even now, that, that th those things may be true for us. Instruct us. Let us learn and devote ourselves to you and this gospel. In Jesus' name we ask it. Amen. Well, two questions to start off. Uh, how important is leadership? How important is leadership, do you think? Uh, most of us would probably answer with a, a very, it's a very important thing, leadership. I mean, without leadership, uh, a society stands still or worse, falls into chaos. Uh, without leadership, businesses become frustratingly ineffective and potentially useless. Football teams, like Man United, become structureless and useless, my present frustration. Uh, leadership in all sorts of areas is, is really important. But how do you feel, this is the second question, how do you feel about being led? How do you feel about being led? Perhaps like me, your first reaction to a question like that is hesitation. You need a little bit more time to think about what your response to that might be. That's because, well, probably in our heart of hearts, we are just that little bit or maybe even a big bit proud there's some kind of arrogance really in us where we think, well, I just want to do the things that I want to do. I don't want to be told what to do. And all of a sudden, we sound like a, a teenager who says, oh, mum, get off my back. Or uh, an employee who just rolls his eyes at the boss's instruction. Now, I start with those questions because First Samuel is really all about leadership. It's a book that underlines God's people's need to put aside their arrogance and realize just how good it is to be led, at least, by the right kind of leader. Now, it's a book that begins with leaderless Israel. It's written at the time of the judges, around 1050 BC, so a thousand years before Christ arrives on scene, and here's how the book of Judges would sum up this time. Uh, in those days, Israel had no king. Everyone did as they saw fit. That's Judges 21-25. But that's a wee chorus that's repeated four times throughout the book of Judges. In fact, this is actually, there's a bit of overlap between Judges and 1 Samuel because actually Samson, for example, is still around at this time. But this motto that they had, this, this might well be a motto that would fit our own nation. This motto for theirs, in those days Israel had no king, everyone did as they saw fit. 
It's like our own nation. We make up our own morality. We like to decide what's right for ourselves. In fact, sadly, it could even be the motto for many so-called churches in our nation too. But Judges ends leaving us with the lingering expectation, though, that leadership is what's needed to restrain the arrogant and sinful ways of God's people. Now, the judges, of whom there were many, as you can read in the book of Judges, were, were really just a temporary solution. Back in the law, you've already got mention of a king, and then these judges are sent by God, essentially, when things got really bad, to restore religious and political order in Israel while they waited for a king. A king is what they needed, and in 1 Samuel, we'll see a king is what they'll get. And uh, I'll put this slide up just to sh show you something of the picture of it. First and Second Samuel in the Jewish scriptures are actually one book. We have them as two, basically because of the division of the, the scrolls weren't long enough. But basically what you have going on here is a transition of leadership. In that first section in chapters 1 to 7, you've got a transition from Eli the priest, who was essentially a judge as well, over Israel, but he's corrupt, as we'll find out. He's a bad leader and don't want to follow him. And that's why Samuel comes along. That's what's happening in chapters 1 to 7. And then in chapters 8 to 15, you've got the transition from Samuel to Saul. Samuel's the one who anoints Israel's first king. And then in 16 to 31, you've got this transition from David, to, uh, from Saul, sorry, to David. And the book is, both books are, this whole story is essentially bookended by uh, a couple of chapters at the start that we're going to look at tonight and three chapters at the end, which are really just, they're, they're theological as well as a story. Now, Israel will get their king, uh, but not straight away. First, they need to be a people who hear God's word. And that's what 1 Samuel 1 to 3, chapters 1 to 3 are all about. God providing this faithful priest in Samuel to replace unfaithful Eli. And as we heard from our reading, the story begins almost bizarrely in an obscure place with one family where one woman in her despair pours out her heart to God in prayer. And let's look at this section together uh, that was read for us in two points, the first of which is this, God provides the priest his people need. God provides the priest his people need, that's point one. Now let's rush through this, verses one to eight essentially show us Hannah's plight, okay? The story begins with this woman Hannah and her barrenness. We're introduced to that straight away. She hasn't been able to have kids. Okay, it is a source of desperate heartache for her as the passage shows, just as it has been for some of you brothers and sisters. Nothing consoles her. The love of her husband in this passage doesn't con console her. You can read that he loves her in verse 5, but he's still not quite the, the holy man, the leader of the household that he ought to be for He's not living as God wants him to. He did what was right in his, in his own eyes and married another woman who could bear his children and leads to this dysfunctional family. In verse 8, Elkanah's 
helplessness, I guess, makes him do what husbands often do, say stupid things that don't help one bit. Uh, Why are you weeping? Why so downhearted? Don't I mean more to you than 10 sons? That's not really the best tact. Uh, And all the women said, no, don't. Uh, Let's not do that. Church doesn't seem to, uh, well, Penina doesn't offer any consolation either. She's not a friend. She's a rival. She's provoking her all the time, verse 6, to irritate her to the point that she doesn't stop, as verse 8 says, until Hannah ends up bursting into tears. I mean, how, how wicked do you have to be to be so oppressive against someone that you really want, you'll only stop whenever you make them cry? I guess you could also say from this passage that church doesn't make, uh, bring Hannah any consolation either. I mean, even in the act of worship, as they're sitting down for this meal at the feast, the, the portions are dispersed. Now, what happens here is that generally people brought their sacrifices to the Lord. We'll see next week what happens. They basically put the sacrifice in a pot or on the altar, and then some of it's taken out for the priests, another portion's taken out for the people who've offered the sacrifice. It's meant to kind of reflect the fact that God's people, when they receive God's forgiveness through sacrifice, get to sit in the Lord's presence and enjoy a meal, okay? That's what's meant to be going on there. But the portions are divided up. And even though she gets a double portion, there's a little bit of debate over what that means in the original language, but it sounds like in love, Elkanah is trying to console her a little bit, but even, even that doesn't bring her any consolation in the act of worship. You might say, well, maybe the pastor will offer some hope. They should, but no. Eli is so useless, he can't even recognize the difference, the difference between drunkenness and brokenness. It's a horrible situation, isn't it? That is Hannah's plight, and there's no consolation. But, This isn't the first time we've heard about barrenness in the Bible, is it? I mean, if you're following the chronology from Genesis through to this point, we've heard of this barrenness before. In two ways, actually. When God was actually making the covenant with his people to say, I'm going to be your God, you're going to be my people, let's live this out, this is going to be wonderful, as a paraphrase. Um, Basically, God says that one of the signs for them that they are under his blessing is that no one, uh, not uh, female, not wife, nor even um, animals will be infertile, but there will be blessing, blessing of children. It was crucial to the promise that God had already made way back when to Abraham. But barrenness was spoken of by the Lord as an indication that things were not right, that God's curse was upon them because of their behavior. So it acted as a sign of the times, if you like. And no doubt there was more than just Hannah who were struggling, who were struggling to have kids back then. But there's also something about barrenness in certain women we've seen in the Old Testament so far where certain women who'd bear a child out of their barrenness, a child of real significance in the Bible storyline. Sarah, Rebecca, and others, heartbroken, sorrowful, brought to the end of themselves really until God moved in ways that showed that something big was about to happen. 
And that's what happens here. Is when Hannah stands up at this service of sacrifice and worship and praise, we actually hear her pray something quite surprising in verses 9 to 18. Hannah's prayer, uh, first of all, kind of expresses her longing. And this is surprising. I mean, in a land when, uh, and time when everyone did what was right in their own eyes, Hannah prays. You know, it, don't assume that just because they're there at Shiloh, at this place of worship where the tabernacle was and the ark of God was, the presence of God was said to be, that um, this family must be doing everything right. This could just be one trip of many. Idolatry was rife back then. But here they are, and here is Hannah praying. She's not trying to find a solution for herself. She's pouring out her heart to God. And here's another surprise. In her vow, did you see it? That the woman who desperately wanted a son makes a promise. She promises in verse 11 to give him to the Lord's service forever and never cut his hair. Now, that sounds really weird, doesn't it? I mean, why would you ever deprive a man the right to go to the barbers? It is a privilege and a joy. But more than that, why would you offer your one and only son into God's service if you were given one? Do you see the tension there? Why would she, having been so broken and so despairing that she's pouring out her soul in anguish to God, say, please, please give me a son. And then what do you expect it to say? Oh, so I can love him, so I can rear him. I want to see him take his first steps. I want to see those milestones throughout his life. I want to see him married off and I want to babysit his my grandkids, you know, all that kind of stuff. But no, it's please, 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 would you give me a son and then I'm going to give him into your service forever. Now, when Hannah makes this promise, she's basically making a very specific request. The thing related to the hair isn't just about haircuts. It relates to what's called in the law a Nazarite vow, okay? A Nazarite vow, it's basically the only way that someone who was not from the priestly tribe of Levi could enter into the priesthood, service in the Lord's presence. And usually that priesthood, that service, was a temporary thing until the point that they got their hair cut. That was a kind of mark of it. But Hannah prays that he'll serve forever. Now, she didn't really know it when she prayed it, and we, don't, we aren't told what led her to pray so specifically for this. There's no indication that she has any idea that Eli is massively corrupt, but maybe she did. It's truer to say, I guess, that, that you know, Hannah was led by the Spirit to pray and prophesy in this prayer as well as the prayer in chapter 2 things that not only met her own need, but her nation's. I guess she's doing something like Caiaphas did in John 11 when he prophesied without realizing it, better for this man, Jesus, to die than for the whole nation to perish. Well, Hannah's prayer expresses her own anguish, but at the same time, it does expose Eli's corruption. This is key to this little section. Eli is a rubbish minister. We're going to look at that a little bit more next week. 
not only does he mistake her sorrow for slurred speech, he, he then tries to backtrack when she explains, look, I'm only just pouring out my soul here. And then he says, look with me, verse 17, go in peace and may the God of Israel grant you what you have asked of him. And little did Eli himself realize that he just asked God to give Hannah his replacement. And now 19 to 20 shows Hannah's son. The boy was born, Samuel. She names him Samuel, which basically means asked for because Hannah got what she asked for. And when she did, Israel got what they needed, a leader who would lead Israel with uprightness and holiness. This is the boy who would go into the Lord's service soon, and as he grew, even as a boy, he would prophesy against the house of Eli. And through this boy, the word of the Lord would go out so that all in Israel heard it. We'll see that later in the book. What an absolute gift he was. What a leader he was. Now, can you see how this points to another son that was born? It's close enough to Christmas, right? We should be thinking about Jesus at this point. I mean, there's Mary. In the Gospel of Luke, she's not barren, but her pregnancy was certainly special. And she was also one who would give birth to a priest who would replace the corrupt priesthood of the day and restore right worship of God's people, not just for Israel, but for every nation. His name was Jesus, and Hebrews calls him the great high priest. Hebrews 9.12 says, he, in his service, entered once for all into the holy places, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing eternal redemption, foreverness with God for us, for those who believe. And the implication of that is outlined clearly earlier in Hebrews, in chapter 4, verses 14 to 16, it says, since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weakness, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we might find mercy and find grace to help in our time of need. Brothers and sisters, you have a great high priest who has purchased your redemption at great cost to himself with his very blood. Praise God. And according to the book of Hebrews, one of the joys and privileges that we have is to do what Hannah did. To pour out your hearts to God. Whether you're pouring them out in despair and anguish or pouring them out in praise as she does in chapter 2. This sermon is not primarily about how to pray. It's not a lesson on moralism, like be like Hannah. It is about Christ, the leader of God's people, 
as we see him reflected in Samuel. But this is an example for us in terms of a secondary application of what true prayer ought to be like. I mean, true prayers aren't formulaic or fancy. True prayers aren't quiet and contemplative. There's, I guess, this kind of weird notion that, I don't know, the more, the more, the more spiritual you are, the more composed you'll be in hard times and despairing times when your heart's broken. But that, that's just nonsense. Look at Hannah. She's in anguish, sobbing uncontrollably, deeply troubled as she does what is right in God's eyes and asks him for what she desires. We truly pray when we grasp how much we need God and grasp how much he cares. We truly pray when we realize that access to God has been won for us through the great high priest, Jesus Christ, our Lord. So do you pray? Do we pray with those things in mind? Isn't that inviting for us? That's why we're praying through the month of November together. That's why as members, you're going to get emails out with the, the daily scriptures to reflect on, daily uh, things to pray for together. Let's do that. Maybe you're here tonight and you're not a Christian. I hope you see that around you, or at least maybe start to see after tonight, that we do live in a society and in a world where everybody does what is right in their own eyes. We're not exactly leadership. We're restrained by some things that we would call common grace, the blessings of government, etc. But the Bible says that when everyone does what is right in their own eyes, with no regard for him, it's called sin. It's actually arrogance to think that we can live the way that we know is best. Uh, I, I read of a guy this week, a journalist turned kind of uh, researcher into ancient civilizations called Graham Hancock, who has got this wonderful one-minute video. Please don't go searching for it because the rest of the stuff that's linked to it is absolutely horrendous. But he was like, oh, we don't need leaders. Why do we need to be led? If we're going to really grow and take this next step as a human race, we need to be our own leaders, each and every one. Like, what absolute... Guff. Can you imagine what that society would be like? Would you like to live in that place? What would, I, what would you say if I told you he was running for the, the, for, for, as an MP and he was going to be the next prime minister? Yeah, we'd be moving to Barbados. <laughs> wouldn't we? don't know why that was the first place that came to mind. But I want you to see, friends, that actually... Leaderlessness is not good for us. But living under the leadership of one who truly loves us and cares that he would shed his blood for us and invite us to keep on asking him for stuff even though we'd, he had given us everything, he's someone you want to live under. He was so, he's someone you'll love living under. If you want to find out more about this Jesus, come and talk to us. Speak to the person who brought you. I'll be at the door at the end. Feel free to come and ask me more questions about him. He is glorious. He is our great high priest. He is the one who is our true king. 
And he's the one, when you grasp who he is, you do what Hannah does in chapter 2. You rejoice in God's salvation. This is a prayer. In chapter 1, she pours out her heart in anguish. But here as she presents the boy Samuel into the Lord's service, she pours out her heart in praise. And she, oh man, you could spend hours on this. She, look at what she does. God is Hannah's joy and delight. In verse 1, she rejoices in who he is to her. My heart rejoices in the Lord. In the Lord, my horn is lifted high. The horn is basically uh, a word that means strength. It's a symbol of strength in the Old Testament. And my mouth boasts over my enemies, for I delight in your deliverance. That's what she sees in her son. Not only as he's born, but as she presents him into the Lord's service forever. She rejoices in who God is to her. Then in verse 2 and 3, she rejoices in who he is in himself. Holy, unique, a solid foundation, a solid rock, immovable. And then in verses 3 to 5, rejoices in what he's done to turn her situation around personally. Silence the arrogant mouth of her rival. No more penina irritating her. No, she has a son in the service of the Lord. And her heart rejoices in the turnaround. He's the God who sees all things and knows all things and does what is right. As he lifts her up, Penina is brought down. Because Hannah has honored the Lord and been lifted up. Penina has dishonored the Lord by being so unloving and he has humbled her. That's what he does. He humbles and he exalts. Those who dishonor me, I will dishonor, but those who despise me will be disdained is the key to unlocking this book. And that's chapter 2, verse 30. We'll get to that. But then in verses 6 to 8, she rejoices in the God of great reversals. That's what salvation is, isn't it? It's a swapping of places, really. It's, it's, it's epic turnarounds. I mean, we're saved ultimately because Christ swapped places with us. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us that we might become, in him, become the righteousness of God. And we rejoice because, oh, we who are mocked for our salvation, what do we see? Our faith vindicated. We're proved right to trust in Jesus and follow his lead. You know, in our minds, perhaps we make salvation all about the low being lifted up, but it is, you know, it is about God being nice to those in trouble and reaching out as he did to Hannah and answer prayer. But the God we meet in 1 Samuel, as we'll see, isn't just nice to those who honor him. He's God's and he will perform the alternative action for those who dishonor him, bringing the arrogant low. And then in verses 6 to 8, he's the one who humbles and exalts. He lifts up those who look to him. He brings down those who despise him. He guards, verse 9, the people that belong to him, gives them victory over his enemies. We're going to see this mapped out through the whole book. This is like a roadmap for the whole book. And the reason that he can do that in and through his people is because not one single person who belongs to him 
does what he asks them to do based on their own strength. No, they do it in his. Remember what she said and Hannah said in verse 1, my horn is lifted high. God is the one who gave her strength. And then in verse 9, it is not by strength that one prevails. The answer is obvious as to how we prevail. We prevail through Christ and the strength that he provides. And then she prays something incredible in verse 10. Led by the Spirit to prophesy for sure. The Most High will thunder from heaven. The Lord will judge the ends of the earth. He will give strength. There it is again. To his king. We don't have a king yet. Which king? Or to the kings that will come? Sure. When they honor him. But he will give strength to his king, the coming king, and exalt the horn of his anointed. And there with that word anointed, you have the first time in the Bible that the word Messiah is used. See how it's all about Jesus. Straight away we're told, even before the baby boy grows up to be able to carry some oil to anoint Saul or David, there's another king in mind. Jesus, the king, who we will find about find out about throughout this whole book. He is the king we need. The leader who will never let us down. There's Jesus right there in Hannah's prayer, unlocking the key not only to this book, but to our entire existence. The question in closing is, is Christ your king? Will you be led by him? And if you are his subject, his son or daughter, do you love being led by your king? And will we strive together with the strength he provides to humbly live under his loving rule? I pray indeed we will and do so more and more. Let's bow our heads and let's take a minute or so just to reflect on Christ our King and to reflect on how this passage might be speaking to you. Uh, you maybe want to pray a prayer like Hannah's first prayer or a prayer like her second. Take a moment to pray in your own heart in response to God's great salvation.